your children, just as we sang this morning, that we are a child of God. We are your children. You are our creator, our maker. Father, we ask that you give us the grace to know uh, our place in your creation. We ask for the strength and the faith to believe <clears throat> that you do rule the world with truth and justice and righteousness. And we ask for the faith to believe that uh, if we seek your kingdom, that you will provide all of the other lesser needs along with it. We ask for the faith to release our anxieties to you, to see the continued mercy from, from the, that we've seen in the past that will continue on in the present and even into the future. We ask for faith to see your purposes and the purpose of your love unfolding in our lives and uh, in our own stories, in our own history. We ask for faith to be calm and, and brave in uh, what we have to face each day. And we ask for faith in your power of your love, your power, the, your love that melts even the hardest parts of our hearts and melts even the hardest hearts that we come in contact with. We ask for faith to trust your love to soften our hearts and to soften the hearts of others who may be moving against, um, against your will and your kingdom. Father, we ask for faith to trust in the ultimate victory of the cross the victory of the Holy Spirit whose power is, has power over death and disease and darkness. And we ask for faith to learn from our sorrows and our sufferings of your goodness and your presence, even when it feels like you may be distant or away. And Father, we ask for faith to trust to leave into your hands the people we love, the people that we don't get to see every day, that maybe live far away, and that are on our minds and our hearts every single day that we think about them, we ask that uh, you give us the faith to trust you and uh, trust that you will watch over them for us. <clears throat> Father, keep us sane in the midst of such confusion and remove the fear that paralyzes us. And we're going to ask also that you give us cheerful hearts in the midst of dull routines uh, that seem to be uh, losing track of days uh, these in this period and we ask that the ability to proclaim your peace and your forgiveness and your order in the midst of chaos and we ask that you give us the words and the, and the actions and the opportunities to do that to an unbelieving world and we ask this in the name of Jesus amen we are continuing on with our um, our series on Isaiah we're finishing up uh, Isaiah 40 to 45 and I mentioned last week that that um, we were, uh, I was trying to make the case that uh, the kingdom that God promises in Isaiah at the very, very beginning of this, this long poem that we've been looking at, chapters 40 to 55, it all begins with, with the words of comfort and, it all, and the, the declaration is that uh, our God reigns. And I was trying to make the case last week that we cannot separate the kingdom from the cross that kingdom and cross are forever intertwined together. You cannot have the kingdom without the victory of the cross. Uh, Satan's rule would remain if it was not for the cross. But at the same time, with, without, without the kingdom, the cross is meaningless. Uh, what, what exactly is that all about? And I was going to do this in one message, and I thought, this is just too much, and I decided to do it in two. So this is kind of the second half of that, anyway. Um, so we're going to look at this, and I, I feel like I had, I had Jerry read that passage out of 1 Peter chapter 2, just because I thought it encapsulates, encapsulates beautifully what we are called to do as believers, as the church, the church with a capital C here. 
let's begin. Let's just support, suppose, let me give you an example here. Let's suppose that you have this wonderful vintage car that you really love, and you're going to get ready to show it in a car show. And so you take the car, and, and uh, if Perry Richards was here, he might understand this better than me. <laughs> but uh, uh, you take the car to your, your favorite mechanic, and he's got all these assistants working on him, and they, know these, they say they know this car backwards and forwards. And they want him to get it ready for the car show, and so uh, he's, he starts working on it. And after a couple of weeks, you come back, and uh, you say, well, where, where's the car? And he says, well, I tell you, the car's really beautiful, and it must have been a lot of fun for a lot of people back in the old days. He said, but I noticed there was a lot of washers that were added to. Maybe those tires were not right for the, the wheels on the car and, you know, had to do a lot of work. So we ended up taking it apart and uh, to look at it. And so he goes, well, well where is it? Well, well, come on in here and look at it. And you look at it and it's, it's in a thousand pieces laid out on the floor. And uh, you're going, well, how can I drive this? And he goes, oh, but, but look at the pieces. They're so beautiful, aren't they? We cleaned them up and they polished them and he picks one up and shows you to you. He says, isn't this, isn't this just gorgeous? Yeah, but I can't drive it. And he said, well, calm down. Calm down and just take in the beauty of it. Just look at it. And you're thinking, well, this is really not functional, is it, to do this this way? I get the feeling and that if you've been in the church for a while or if you've read any theology or, or studied this and kind of dove into, into Christianity, that sometimes we come away with this feeling, I know I have, and we ask these why questions and they end up putting Christianity and what we're here for is just in a bunch of different pieces. And we ask the question, you know, well, why? We even have fancy words for them, you know. We ask the question, well, why was Jesus born? Well, let's study Christology and let's study the incarnation and let's talk about why Jesus was born. And you say, well, why, why did he die? Well, let's study these theories of atonement here, and we'll explain why he, he died. And uh, then you study, well, I hear about all these other things. Yeah, this is called angelology, and then we have demonology. And, uh, but why is Jesus coming back? Well, then we have this thing called eschatology, and it explains the end times and, and how this is all going to end. And, we, and so you have all these pieces out, and you go, but I can't drive the car. You've got these pieces everywhere. And they're nice pieces, they're beautiful pieces, you got nice words for them, but they're just pieces. What's, what's the point? I think we lose the idea that what the Bible is all about. We think the Bible is this, somehow this collection of systematic theology, and they even call it systematic theology, and you end up studying these different systems. Or it's the Bible is some manual that's been let down on the string, and it's uh, full of regulations and instructions. And if I just need to look up the topic and I can find how to do this, uh, I need to have a dynamic marriage, so let me look up this and it'll tell me how to do this. I need to raise my kids right, it'll, it'll pick me, take me exactly how to do this. And we see it as this bits and pieces of collections of topics and themes and things like that. And not that those things are bad, but how do we drive the car? What are we getting at here? But in reality, the Bible is one story. From Genesis to Revelation, it's one story. It's a collection of beautiful, inspired literature, of poetry, of, of, of narrative, of uh, prophetic words, of songs, and, uh, and declarations, and instructions. And it's just this beautiful collection of different letters to individuals, a different collection of literature that's inspired by God. And, and it's, it tells us this one long story. And we see that in Isaiah 40 to 55. 
it all begins with these words, these two words in Hebrew, Malak Elohiyik, is my, our God reigns, your God reigns. That's how it all starts, and this is how it gets through. And this is what this whole little section, this Isaiah 40 to 55, which is kind of sometimes called the fifth gospel, this is what it's all about, is our God reigns. And this is what God is doing. And that's what I was trying to do last week, to say that without the reign, without the reign of God, the cross is meaningless, and the cross and the, and the kingdom are intertwined together. Well, this morning I want to make the case that, that, that the cross and the kingdom are intertwined in the work of the suffering servant, but now I want to make the case that the cross and the kingdom are intertwined in the followers of the suffering servant. That it has to do with us. That this is what happens when God becomes king. The church needs to rediscover its vocation, its calling. What is it here for? And I'm, here we go. I forget to turn this on sometimes. Recovering the church's vocation. And I'm looking at chapters... The, the Isaiah chapters as well as the first Peter chapter is how to recover our vocation. The, the Greek word for, for church is ekklesia, the called out ones, the ones who are called out to do something. It is the embodiment of the suffering servant. It is the embodiment of God's purpose that Christ is, is declared in his word and his deed. This is what we are about. We are called out to do something. And we have different values we have, uh, Isaiah says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways, implying that we need to think like God does. We need to be, show the way that God does. Our values are very different, that we are the embodiment of the call of Christ. We are not called to transform the world. We are called to be the transformed world. Uh, we, are, we are not called to to make the world a better place. We are called to be a better place. We are not called to fix the world, to fix the old world. We are called to be the new world in the midst of the old world and woo people to the God of comfort. That's our, that's our calling. This is our vocation. We embody the message of the kingdom. We embody the message of Christ. We embody Christ himself. This is his body. And we are called to do this, be different. Now we end, tend up, we end up falling on one side of the on, on one side of the horse. On one side of the horse we fall off on is that we entangle our faith, this kingdom agenda, this kingdom vocation that we have. We entangle it with the political realm, and it happens on the left and the right. We we entangle it so much that it becomes this syncretistic sort of new religion. It's so entangled. And we can't tell the difference. It's not really, we don't know what it is. And so we get so entangled in that that we fall off that horse and get on that side. Uh, Shane Claiborne has this wonderful quote. He says, uh, entangling religion, entangling Christianity with politics is like mixing manure with ice cream. It leaves the manure pretty much unchanged, but it kind of ruins the ice cream. <laughs> and he's right. That's what happens when we fall off on one side of the horse. The other side of the horses that we fall off on is that we think we've got to withdraw from the culture. We've got to remove back, distance ourselves from it, and then from there we can just kind of throw rocks at it. But that's not what it's called. We are called to be in the midst of it, in the midst of this. And you say, well, if we do one of those two sides, if we fall off the horse on either one of those two sides, what happens is we lose our authority. 
and we get ignored. No one listens to us anymore. And I, my feeling is, if the culture is going to ignore me, I want it to ignore me because I speak about what Paul calls the scandal of the cross. If I'm speaking about the scandal of the cross and the world ignores me, so be it. But that's where we stand. That's where we get our moral authority, is the scandal of the cross. And that's where we are. If we want to build a better world, we have to be the, the, be the better world in the midst of a broken down world. That's where, that's where we are. The first century saw the Christians come by and the Romans witnessed this birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 and, and uh, the disciples, this whole thing changed and what they were witnessing in the first century, first three centuries really, was something that wasn't human. It was divine. They witnessed people doing life in a totally different way. Instead of, being, instead of being driven by vengeance and greed or narcissism or pride or arrogance, instead of being driven by those things, they're driven by something else. And they end up feeding the poor and clothing, clothing the naked and, and releasing those who are in, the, in bondage under Satan's, Satan's uh, control that they, they claimed and they, they offered peace and they, they gave forgiveness and they preached forgiveness. That's unheard of. That is just that's so hard to do. And this was different. This was different. This was larger than any, any political moment you can ever imagine. And it changed history. We are called to have the DNA of the suffering servant. The cross and the kingdom are forever intertwined in the suffering servant and in the followers of the suffering servant. We carry the DNA of the servant. So we look at the royal priesthood. That's why I wanted Jerry to read that, just because Peter kind of encapsulates this whole idea in the idea of the royal priesthood. I said last week that sometimes we want to scoop out Isaiah 53 and make it stand on its own, that that's what the gospel is all about. And it's, it says, uh, well, the whole chapter, Isaiah 53, I just picked these two verses to kind of sum it up. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment and made us well. Because of why his wounds, we are healed. Now that is the center. I am not denying that. That is the center foundation of the gospel. But sometimes we want to scoop it out and put it by the side and say, that is everything. But it's not. It begins with your, our God reigns, and this is how he reigns. This is what we're going to, this is how he, he rules the world. So the royal priesthood, what are we? Looking at Isaiah 40 to 55, I've just come up with a few things that maybe identify us as a royal priesthood. We are a people who speak to a world in exile. Just as Isaiah was speaking to the world in exile, he was speaking a prophetic warning. And we do, we also speak a prophetic warning to the world that is in exile, a world that is suffering. That uh, we, we have to learn to re, relearn this art of unmasking the lies of idols. We have to recognize where idolatry comes from and what is it, what is it doing. Uh, that this return from the idols, because this is what, has created the mess that we're in. And it all started in Genesis 1. 
And it all started in Genesis 1 and 2, I'm sorry, with with God installing us as to be, reflect his rule in the world. And then in Genesis 3, something goes horribly wrong. And we see it in Genesis 3 where, where this is what God wants to do. But because of this, because of our decided to do world, to do life apart from God, we end up with a disaster. We've made a royal mess of things. And I think chapters 3 through 11, I was asked about this this week, and I think chapters 3 through 11 of Genesis exactly describes what happens when we try to live apart from God. We get murders. We get a brother killing a brother. We get women who are, who are kidnapped and raped. We get uh, pride. We get arrogance. It's just a disaster. And God puts in the plan in chapter 12 when he calls Abraham this long plan to recover what he lost. And we have to have that, recover that, that um, art of unmasking and uncovering the idols. And there, it's a lot harder these days than it was in the Isaiah's time. Because in Isaiah's time, they had idols that they built out of stone and rock and wood, and they had to prop them up and we could identify them. But in our day, it's not quite so hard, not quite, not quite so easy to identify. But they're still there. Whenever we say, oh, well, that's just the way things are, we have to do things this way, even though it hurts people because that's the law of economics. Then we're worshiping an idol. And we worship these idols of, of Mammon, of Mars, the god of war, or Aphrodite, the god of, of, of eroticism, the goddess of eroticism. We worship those without knowing. We say, well, that's, I have to do this. My passions are d- dictating me. I can't resist my passions. Or we say, oh, we, we'll drop bombs over here, and that'll, that'll solve every problem. And it never does. We have made a mess of things, and we've got to learn how to call these idols out. We are a world who speaks. We are a people who speak to a world in exile. And call idols what they are. Let's call it what the way they see it. And look in our own lives, too, and look in our own lives in, our mirror, in the mirror and see where there's hostility for us. We are a people of the creator God. We are the people of the creator God. And that makes, that makes all the... I, I believe we can almost reduce every problem to this confusion, that we forget who we are, that we are people of the creator God. When Isaiah is talking about, uh, in, this, in this one long poem, he repeats over and over and over again, you are creatures of the creator God. He is your maker. And he uses the metaphor of wife and husband, if you remember that. And he says, yeah, yeah, he is your husband. But not only is he your husband, he is your maker. And we have to get back to that to realize who we are. That God has created this wonderful world for us to live in. And that we are called to have a job to reflect his rule in this world. This was our job to do. And we know who we are. We have to know who we are. That we are created beings. And when we realize that, when we go back to Genesis Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we kind of get caught up in one debate. And that debate is, do we interpret it literally or figuratively? And we get so caught up in that, it's it's another case of polishing the pieces. And we get so caught up in that debate that we forget what this means. That when we recognize God as the maker, our creator, it, it reminds us and it places us, and it reminds us of who we are, and it places us on the map so that we can locate who we are and where we are in God's creation. And that is super important. And Isaiah emphasizes this over and over again. We are people of the creator God. We need to know who we are and where we are. 
We are a people of the reconciled. We are the people who are been healed. God is all about the reconciliation. The suffering servant is all about the reconciliation. Not only our reconciliation with God and our relationship with God, and by, by default, by that, we then are reconciled with others around us. That God has chosen the church, the Christian people with the DNA of the servant. That God reconciles us, reconciles the world through us, but he's also reconciling in us. That we are not only the instruments of reconciliation in the world, we are also the expression of reconciliation in the world. And the world ought to be looking at us and say, see how they love one another. Something must be going on there. Because we have been reconciled with each other. Any other political solution to this is weak in comparison. It only goes so far. Any kind of political solution only goes so far. We, by our existence, by our life in the church, we are to be proclaiming that there are no barriers in God's kingdom. No racial barriers, no gender barriers, no class barriers, no color of skin barriers. There are no barriers in the kingdom of God. This is what we proclaim. And in the political realm, we've got lots of words that describe this. We've got, we got diversity, we've got tolerance, we've got political correctness, equal access, equal opportunity, all these nice words and stuff, and there's nothing wrong with these words, really. But really, when you think about it, these words are just showing us how we can tolerate one another. But tolerating one another is different than reconciliation reconciliation is much much harder than putting up with each other reconcile means forgiveness power it means the power of repentance and we recognize the power of someone saying I'm sorry and someone else saying I forgive you there's great power in that that is different than tolerance that is different than political correctness it's different than equal access this is really reconciliation Amen. and if you've ever read anything about from Desmond Tutu or about him he just recently passed away he says if there's nothing more powerful than someone saying I'm sorry and someone else saying I forgive you that is incredibly incredibly powerful it's more than just putting up with one another and if there's anybody that should know about repentance and forgiveness it should be us that should be part of our normal vocabulary repentance and forgiveness we should know all about that and we are a people of the reconciled it is our thing repentance and forgiveness is kind of our thing and we should be recognized not only carrying it out not only being instruments of reconciliation but the expression of reconciliation. And finally, we are a people of comfort. We are a people of comfort. This whole poem, beginning chapter 40, begins with comfort, comfort my people. Isaiah is a book of comfort. And Isaiah is saying, don't be afraid. Come back to Yahweh. Come back to God. This servant will make it do, will make it work. The servant will sort it out. He has sorted it out. We are a people of comfort. Don't be afraid to come back to the God of comfort. Now, why would they be afraid to come back? 
Well, as I mentioned before, God hates it when somebody, you know, in a marriage and thinks they found somebody more, more interesting, and so they go off with this other person. God does not like that. And he doesn't like it in his people. And that's the, that's the analogy that he gives, Isaiah gives. He said it is like Israel is his wife, and they have found somebody more interesting. They have found an idol, another lover that's more interesting, and they have gone off. And he's saying, don't be afraid to come back. Amen. And if we put this in a, in a human level, let's suppose that a wife finds somebody that she thinks is more interesting, and she goes off with him. And while she's there, she realizes, you know what? That older weight balding man back home who cheers at his daughter's dance recital, who puts his arm around his son who struck out in the ninth inning, you know what? I think that's the guy I really love. But I can't go back because he might reject me. I can't go back because I don't know how he'll treat me. I will always be lesser in his eyes. I can't go back. I'm too afraid to go back. Well, that's what Isaiah is saying to Israel. That's what God is saying to us. We found somebody more interesting than God, and God is saying, well, through the servant, he's saying, come back. Don't be afraid. The only thing you will find when you come back is my comfort. You will not find my rejection. You will not find my punishment. You will not find anything like that. You will just find my comfort. So come back. Don't be afraid. Just to kind of sum up, what on earth does it mean today to say Jesus is king? What on earth does it mean to say that Jesus is king? I think a lot of Christians don't even think about what it means in real life when we say Jesus is king. We say it like something we believe, and I say it like I believe it, just like I believe the sun is hot or the sea is wet. But what does it mean in real life when we say Jesus is king? What does that actually mean? It means that he rescues us and he transforms us. And I worded the question like this on purpose. What on earth does it mean because I'm taking it from the, from the Lord's Prayer where Jesus said, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does it mean on earth? What on earth does it mean when we say Jesus is king? From the very beginning, God had planned to rule the creation through us, through people. And we have kind of made a mess of it. And if we don't believe or if we don't suppose that we have we're being naive human beings they can they can make bombs or we can make music we can build concentration camps and uh, and torture chambers and we can also build hospitals and schools we can do a lot of things, that, do things that are, that are amazingly horrible 
and we can do things that are amazingly wonderful. But left to ourselves, we pretty much make a mess of things. And so the suffering servant does two things. He will always do two things. He rescues us and he transforms us. He rescues us and he transforms us. The rule of Jesus rescues us. Rescues us out of sin, out of Satan's grip, out of idol worship. He pulls us out of that. And we can say, well, Jesus is king, so he can do it all by himself. That was never God's plan. And it still isn't God's plan. God always was wanting to rule the world through human beings. And it's being taken care of, and the servant is sorting it out. He sorted it out on the cross, and he will sort it out for it completely when he comes back. He will sort it out. He is sorting it out. He did sort it out. He has rescued us. Now, when we think that God wants to use us to rule, it doesn't mean we're downgraded to pawns or to some sort of soulless robots. It means that we actually get to be what we were intended to be to begin with. We get to be what God wanted us to be from the very beginning. To rule the world by reflecting his rule through us. That's what he intended. So we're not downgraded. This is where we get to be truly human. We get to be the human beings that God wanted us to be at the very beginning. And he wants to transform us. And we get transformed when we worship. When we get transformed when we worship because we are declaring our allegiance to the servant. We are declaring our loyalty to the servant. And that orients everything. It reorients everything. It reorients our will. It reorients our imagination. It reorients our hope. It reorients our fears. That we no longer have to worship the God of war, the God of economics, the God of, of, of relationless uh, eroticism. We don't have to worship those gods, even regardless of how demanding they may be and how much they may want to punish us when we resist. But it orients reorients everything. It reorients us to a position that we realize that love is stronger than death. That that is true. That the kingdom has been promised to the poor. And our faithfulness to each other and our faithfulness within this body reflects his faithfulness to us. His faithfulness to the covenant. Our faithfulness reflects that that the poor were promised the kingdom, that the faithfulness is sure, that we are lovers of holiness and righteousness and justice, that we plant our flag that supersedes all other flags and our loyalty to the servant. We are a people who march to a different beat. We are a people who march to a different beat. We march in step with the suffering servant. He shapes us and he guides us. That the cross and the kingdom are forever intertwined in the work of the suffering servant. And the cross and the kingdom are forever intertwined in the followers of the suffering servant. They run together and they make us a royal priesthood. That God desires 
to change the world. But when God changes the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, and he sends in the mourners, and he sends in the peacemakers, and he sends in those who thirst and hunger for righteousness and justice. That's how things change. Amen. We, be, we are to be the new world in the midst of the old world. And God works through us. We are his instrument, and we are the expression of that. The cross and the kingdom are forever intertwined. We are going to celebrate communion this morning. Um, and this is a very appropriate way to celebrate communion and declare our loyalty to the servant and declare our love for him. Revelation 3.20 gives us the greatest dinner invitation of all time. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. This is the greatest dinner, dinner invitation of all time. Amen. And we're going to do that this morning. And we're going to do it in a little bit different way uh, than we have in the past. It's gonna, we're going to spend some time in prayer, silent prayer and contemplation together. And I'm going to ask Kendra, she'll come on up, and we're going to um, kind of lead us in some prayer and then take the uh, elements together. So I would like to ask the ushers also if they would come and, and uh, um, hand out the elements for us, please.